Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, and I am your host today, Terry Robinson, and I have the distinguished honor of speaking with prolific author of books and soon-to-be prolificer author of yet more books, Charles Siegel. We previously talked about The Enlightened Grimoire, which was the one book that when published, I think the collective community just went, oh, thank God someone else did it. Charles is here today to talk about his next summary tome, Mystic Armory. Charles, could you give us a, a rundown of what's in it? So just like Enlightened Grimoire was all of the roads that I could f- that I could find, I have apparently missed a couple and there will be an update. Mystic Armory is all of the wonders that I can find. And if anyone points out that I missed something, there will be an update. So what's a wonder? So a wonder is the term that's used in Mage for any sort of magic item, items that have pa- have powers that have been enhanced with magic, all the way from laptops that have the power of a supercomputer to magic swords that burst into flame when you wield them. How is then a wonder different from just a focus? So wonders make really great instruments in the current language, and especially a wonder that's really nicely enmeshed in the character's paradigms. But generally speaking, an instrument is just an object or an action that a mage uses to cast magic using their spheres, whereas a wonder has its own powers. So I pick up this wonder for the first time. This is something I don't know if it was ever explained anywhere. How will I know if something is a wonder? That is a very good question. So many wonders, though not all, have a decent amount of quintessence stored in them. So Prime 1 should show that off. Some of them are a bit trickier, and you just kind of have to figure it out. Nice. I I just remember back to my D&D days, and you had the spell Detect Magic. There doesn't appear to be a mage analog so much. And with Detect Magic, it would almost kind of give you an instruction manual if you got enough successes trying to figure out how this, if your intelligence was high enough. You'd be like, oh, okay, here's the on button. So my characters stumble across an item. They realize that it's probably a wonder. How the heck do they figure out how to use it? The number one way is research. Ideally, you find the person who created it and you ask them. If they are not around anymore, or you can't ask them for other reasons, you try to go through their written notes. And if there's no one to ask and there's no written documentation, you're up to trial and error. Nice. That sounds like it could in no way go poorly, especially when I'm dealing with an awakened plasma cannon. The plus side is that something like an awakened plasma cannon, it's really point and click. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's somewhat more obvious on how things work. Technocratic wonders are really easy because they're designed for the masses. We have so far been using the term wonder pretty liberally, and that is that is kind of yeah. an umbrella term that includes just about yes. everything. You have made mention to items that are usable by the masses. Is there a term for something that only a mage can use versus something that brings its own arete to the party versus something that sleepers can use? Is there a lexicon dichotomy there or trichotomy? There's quite a few different divisions, some of which anyone can use, some of which any mage can use, assuming that their paradigm matches, of course. Okay. The highest level ones, the most powerful things, are talismans and devices. Okay. Called that way, depending on whether they're mystic or or technological. Okay. They do have their own arete. And that's what's rolled. So that means that your apprentice gets your gets their hands on on a powerful talisman, and you're rolling Arate six to cast Fireball suddenly. On the other hand, that means that you know, a sleeper, void engineer, trained operative, is also rolling six dice to to shoot you with a laser, and they don't have to be awake at all. They just need a crash course in the device. 
Oh, interesting. So it sounds like, are talismans and devices paradigm agnostic then? Or does it still require a sympathetic paradigm to use? If you are operating in a worldview where flaming swords don't even make sense, how are you going to turn on a flaming sword? I don't know. I assume there's a well-marked jewel on the side of flaming swords. Whenever I acquire a flaming sword, it usually comes with a brief instruction manual, but noted. So e even even these very potent items are going to be partially limited by the by the worldview of, of the people interfacing with it. It is not unreasonable for your characters to stumble upon someone who has a talisman or device who does not realize they have a talisman or device. Oh, absolutely. These things are somewhat paradigm bound. Most mages, I would argue, especially tradition mages who see other paradigms on a regular basis, have a loose enough understanding of how things work that they can probably cobble together a way to make everything go. But if a iterator picks up that flaming sword, it's probably just going to be a sword. So that is the, the first of the three types. What is the second then? So then there's artifacts and inventions. Again, same, same thing, but di ter different terms for mystic and, techn and technological. So these don't have their own arete. So that means sleepers can't use them. A mage can roll their arete to use sphere effects that have been built into them, though. So here's where, although random sleeper on the street can't do anything with it, an apprentice can still get a little bit of power out of things that are way more advanced than they should be having anything to do with. We have our Plasma Launcher, which is emulating a Forces 3 Prime 2 effect. My character only has an Arite of 2, so in-game they would never even be able to have access to the Forces Sphere. Are they still able to use this device? Yes, they are. I'm using device with a lowercase d there. Then what is the third class? So the next class, and honestly, these are my favorites. Go on. Are Charms and Gadgets. These are both easier to make and easier to mass produce. You make them in big batches rather than one at a time. And what they are is the person who creates them, they roll their arate, that determines how powerful they are, and then anyone can use them as long as they follow the right instructions because the magic's already been done. It's just sort of locked into a physical form temporarily. They're all one-shot items too. Okay, and are they going to bring their own arete to the party or a similar dice pool? The uh, original caster determines it. So I cast this charm. When I make it, do I know how potent it's going to be? Or do I only find that out once I crack the seal of uh, demon leveling? I'm pretty sure that you don't know until you try to use them. Oh, wow. That's a that's that's going to put a brown stain in your pants if you didn't prepare for things appropriately. And, and you know if it didn't work. Okay, got it. You know if it worked, you're not quite sure of the level of potency. And I imagine you're not entirely sure if it botched either. If it botched, then you're at the mercy of the ST. Understood. So <laughs> if you roll for creation and you see the shit-eating grin on the storyteller's face, be prepared. Understood. And this is why I ST mostly over text. Oh, interesting. So we've gone over the basic types. And in addition to that, we have primers, periaps, matrices, fetishes, grimoires, principia, and such. Do you have, are, are any of those particularly notable that you think the audience should be familiar with or a storyteller should have in their, in their toolbox? Probably most mages, including most PCs, will never have the opportunity to make a periap because they require mastery of matter. Okay. Uh, but they're really useful because they hold more quintessence. So, okay, we got this uh, quintessent battery. If you're about to go up against a hit mark, then if you can do it with 50 quintessence on hand, which is still a massive amount hard to get for a PC, you're going to do it because then you can throw quintessence into every spell. Uh-huh. You, you got some grease to lubricate the wheels of reality, and that never really hurts. Yeah, and matrices are just the technocratic word for periapt. Primers 
are nice because they are one of the only ways that anyone has ever figured out to get someone else to awaken. And the notable example of a primer in Mage 20 is basically Mage 20. Go on. It's a 700-some-odd page RPG book called Oracle the Essence written by Porthos Fitzempress, which has often been a name that Satter has written under. I like the idea of leaving out a copy of The Fragile Path for your characters to run into and then being like, nope, never mind, don't want to do this bullshit, and it being like an anti-primer that allows people to go back to sleep and like become accountants again. I've had sleepers refer to it as the best fantasy novel they've ever read. What, M20? The Fragile Path. Oh, yeah. I have to convince my housemate, who's quite a skilled pianist, to play through the part for, uh, what is it, Sister Bernadette? I'm kind of curious to hear what it actually sounds like. Although a combination of a little bit of insanity plus mind, matter, and correspondence seems like a great way to get an enlightened barbershop choir going when all four parts are just you. These objects are all fundamentally empowered by things that the mage is doing. They're bringing either their own arete to the party or the device already has it. How is that fundamentally different then from a fetish capital F? Okay, so a fetish involves the mage finding a spirit that can do something that they want, and whether by negotiating or by force, putting the spirit into an object, and then the spirit is what's doing the magic. One of the side effects is that fetishes tend to attract a lot less paradox. So you already have something that fits within the walls of reality or is only subject to traditional unbelief, who's doing the effect. That sounds a little bit less reliable in terms of I, none of these other devices suggest to me that they can have a temper tantrum and just be like, no, I'm not going to help you cast fireball today. Or do fetishes kind of assume to just work? No, fetishes can do that, uh, especially if you're trying to force them. Usually if you negotiate with the spirit in good faith and you keep up your end of the bargain, the fetish will be reliable. Before then we get into the rest of your text, where were your main sources for this? So a player picks this up and is like, oh man, these are amazing. I'd love the rules for how to make my own. Where should I point that person? So there's a short version of the rules for how to create a wonder in M20. There's a longer version in Book of Secrets, which is, of course, the most recent thing. And for people who want a whole book on basically just how to do this and familiars, there's Forged by Dragon's Fire under the revised rules. Which has a wonderful Jeff and Roy Lobenstein cover to it. You digged into a lot of other references. Was there any weird place where you're like, oh, I, I didn't expect myself to find a wonder in this book? I was actually more surprised at the books that didn't have wonders. Oh, interesting. Like what? The first edition tradition books. None of them had any wonders in them? Uh, I, there are tons in the revised tradition books. Okay. But the first edition had a lot of rotes, which uh, I did co- put t- together for Enlightened Grimoire. Not so much for wonders. Huh. And the one that leapt out on me was Infernalism, the Path of Screams. That seems to have been chock full of goodies from the from the Sorcerer's Crusade era. Yeah, well, one of the things it did was it had a lot of grimoires in it. If you look through and start spotting magic books, you'll see a lot of them are referenced in Infernalism. And not all of them are necessarily evil books. Well, that's good. I was kind of like, when I saw the Infernalism, Path of Screams popping up, I'm like, maybe I don't want my players to encounter these. Well, they're, they're books that, in the wrong hands, could let you make a pact with a demon. Mm, okay, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So things like The Greater Seal of Solomon are, is in there. Oh, okay. Some of the books there are quite evil. And then I think, I'm trying to remember if it was actually handled as a grimoire or just in the text. Infernalism also covers the, the Batini book on how to hunt Nathandi. I like the idea, though, then, of a Batine grimoire that also has, like, Arcane 5. And being like, shit. Where did I put that? And that becomes like the story unto itself. You, Your book has an exceptional number of wonderful illustrations in it. Some of them I recognize from extant mage publications. Where did you get them? 
I got a lot of uh, Creative Commons, you know, commercial li- commercial with use license art from a website called Pixabay. I went on the Creative Commons search page, and it was one of the options, and that's the one that seems to have the best art for things like this. That's pretty saucy. Do you have a favorite piece or a favorite favorite thing that you stumbled on in that process? There's one that's in Enlightened Grimoire of what to any mage player should look immediately like a spirit cat that I very much like. There are a bunch of really good ones. I'm particularly happy with the the one that I used as the cover for Enlightened Grimoire, though. The pentagram in stars that was on almost a perfect mage purple background. Yes. I'd like to get a formal color palette for mage. That way, when I redo my gaming room, I, I can have something to work with. I was initially thrown off by your title because there was a book released on the Storyteller Vault for Vampire, which I think was Hunter's Armory. And that was just that was just a big book of guns and swords and things that go boom. But I was uh, delighted to see that this was vastly more interesting than that. Yeah, for both of them, I've tried to, because I'm covering both sides, I've tried to pick sort of one more mystic word and one more technological word. Understood. So Enlightenment, Union, and then Grimoire from the traditions, and Mystic, and then Armory. Ah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So when you were going through this, was there one wonder that you're like, this is what I want? If I ever discover that this John is real, I want me one of these. Do you have a favorite? I don't think I actually do have a, have a favorite. There, there are so many good ones. And a lot of the ones that would have been my favorites back in the early 90s are, let's just say, very outdated. Oh, noted. I tried to update the ones that I could, but there's only so much you can do when the whole point of the wonder is your computer can now communicate with other computers wirelessly. Huh, yeah, I wonder if there's a way to do that without magic. I am particularly fond of Ionic Cloth, mostly because it is background cost oh, yeah. zero, and I think we refer to that at this point as Under Armour, so that <laughs> that's a pretty useful one. So two of my favorites to write up were Ionic Cloth and the DEI for Iteration Act, because they each had three not consistent entries across three different books. What made them inconsistent? Was it just the progress of technology or? I think it's, it was mostly different writers writing in different ways, different editions, things like that. Uh, but both of them appeared in both convention books and in the Guide to the Technocracy, which, which meant that there was, a lot, there was a lot to work with for writing those entries. I also like the fact that your book clearly points out that atomic weapons are gadgets. So I think that's pretty cool. The idea that the U.S. secretly has a atomic stockpile that is several thousand enlightened devices. So I, I can't take too much credit for that because they actually put stats for nuclear weapons in Fallen Tower Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Which I only recently learned that the Fallen Tower is just a reference to the Major Arcana. And if there are ever to be any more city guides, then it would probably continue that reference my one side project is I want to do a Storyteller Vault supplement for Philadelphia. And as many people know, the mascot for our hockey team is Gritty, which is usually considered among Wiccan circles to be the same as the devil. So I want to have Gritty inverted, a Awakened Guide to Philadelphia. We'll see if that comes out in the next year. For anyone else who may be interested in picking this up, is there anything else within it besides the, the fact that it contains everything that you would like to point out? So there is a short section at the end which has some optional rules related to Wonders. One of my favorite things that they put out with, with regard to Wonders is when, you always have to come up with the question of, why should my character make a Wonder? It's an expensive process. You have to put in a lot of quintessence or tasks. 
It requires a lot of successes. It requires decent amounts of prime, plus whatever spheres your effect needs. Why not just do those effects as you need them instead of putting them into a wonder? Mm -hmm. Gadgets and charms is a bit easier because they're cheap, plentiful, and you can hand them off to other people to use. But why make a talisman? That's going to cost you a permanent willpower. And finally, towards the end of the whole line, in Sons of Ether Revised, they put out optional rules that made making wonders make a lot more sense from the perspective of the individual mage. Uh, this is the wonder sphere rules. So how do wonder spheres work? So you can buy spheres for half price, but you can only use them for, for making wonders. So that sounds like it's going to be a way to burn through willpower then. Well, but you can also use them to make uh, not just talismans, but also artifacts, also charms. Oh, okay. Let's say that you have an Arate 3 Forces 2 character, and you want to be able to build wonders that will, you know, like you want to build, make yourself a Wand of Lightning Bolt or something, you know, mm -hmm. to pick a very D&D type of name. Then the two options that really jump out are save up and buy Forces 3, and then just cast Lightning Bolt from your wand whenever you need it, and that's it. Or you can get a Wonder Sphere for half price, and then you just actually make the wonder, and now there's another wonder floating around, and you've spent half as much XP. This also uh, gives you the option for explaining why, say, technocrats who use wonders quite a lot may have a lot more spheres than your average hermetic, who may not be on board with, with half learning a sphere. This is similar to something I wanted to see in that before a character got a new sphere dot, they could halfway there buy what I call rote access to it where the character yeah. would only be able to use the sphere as pertains to established rotes used by their tradition or taught to them by by whomever. So this is this sounds like a, a, a wonder slash device equivalent to that. Yeah, and, I, and I've actually used that exact rote rule. Uh, rotes like wonders suffer from the why problem in, in a lot of games. One of the dichotomies that D&D that &D kind of focuses on is you can start with the premise that your characters are just average people who have been bitten by wanderlust or chosen by destiny to go do something. Or you can start with the idea that your characters are exemplary people, that all adventurers are at the top end of the ability for whatever their, whatever their species or class is. And I've always been curious about the view of the same within mage. I feel like the default is something akin to your mage is the average mage. It just so happens these are the stories that they're, that they're going through. But as time goes on, it seems like more and more mages spend most of their time doing insular things related to their paradigm or maintaining a community or, or some street-level organization like that, and maybe that player characters are somehow special within there. And while most people work with rotes, mages that are player characters are inordinately likely to use a more freeform system of magic compared to other people. I think that there's that same dichotomy in mage, and it's really a question of the street-level game or kind of the cosmic-level game. If you're going to run a street-level game where your mage's concerns are things like, how do I avoid poverty? How do I hide from the technocracy? And how do I scrape together the basics I need in order to continue learning along my mystical path? Then your character probably isn't actually special among mages, but your character is special among the people that they're interacting with. This, is ten this tends to be a lower magic game and it can work very well. You just have to be aware of what the expectations are and so on. On the other hand, the cosmic level game, while your mage 
actually tends to start out underwhelming when it comes to mages. And you're at best Arate 3, and you're and you're going to be interacting with people who are like Porthos and Dante, possibly running around the Umbra and all that sort of thing. In order for this to even make sense, have to be extraordinary mages, because frankly, PCs gain experience points faster than NPCs do. Yeah, I, I feel like the one exception to that, there, there seems to be a few cases of Archmasters popping up at unusually young ages. But within the game system, they usually suggest decades to reach a fourth or a fifth dot, where players tend to accumulate it a good bit faster than that. Yeah. If you uh, if your game sessions take place once a week, and they're following real time with your characters, it takes less than a year to have the XP to buy your Arate 5 Seeking. There is almost no NPC who, a year after finishing their apprenticeship, becomes a master. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, can, but that is a thing you can do with a PC... And if that's happening, your PCs are definitely special, even among mages. Huh. That's an interesting way of, uh, of talking it through completely. And once again, you've proven that anything that I've had a glimmer of thought about, you have the ability to generate a master's level thesis on it. And this is why we love having you on, Charles. Uh, I, I've been STing mage since 99. I have a lot of experience and thought about a lot of these things already. Now, speaking of that level of experience, is there a way in which wonders have changed over time? Like, is there something when you were looking through all these texts that either over history or over the editions that there was a, a great version shift? So nothing absolutely huge. The biggest changes mechanically were just how many background points the same things cost, which mostly followed from the changes in the spheres over the years. Okay. Thematically, there are quite a few changes. But again, they follow the same changes that happened throughout the game as a whole. Uh, for instance, in first edition, so I'm going to talk about the first edition technocracy. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Okay. One of the things that a, tech, that a progenitor could do to heal you is basically wave a stick that had wires poking out of it at you and you get healed. Yeah, first edition progenitors always seem to be something of a uh, technocratic cargo cult in that they, they use this veneer of science. Yeah, the first edition technocracy in general had this kind of feel of they know that magic is real, they are doing magic, and they are lying to everyone else. Whereas in the second edition and forward, it's very clear that, no, they are doing science as they believe in it. They really do believe the things that they're saying. Maybe they recognize that magic is the thing out there, but they're not a fan of it. And there has to be a rational explanation for how things work. But in first edition, that was not really the case. The technocracy was felt disingenuous in first edition. And so you get wonders, not in the uh, technocracy books, that just make almost no sense. And you have to work pretty hard to cobble together how could a technocrat, as we understand them now, actually use these things. But that also holds for a lot of the roads. Okay. So it's transitioned over time. Yeah, as the game has gotten deeper and, and the technocracy in particular got fleshed out and turned from like very evil black hat villains into every bit of the shades of gray that the traditions have. Yeah, I'm glad that they've certainly converged in that regard. So do you have any recommendations on how a storyteller that picks up Mystic Armory and decides to use it in their game should go about using it to use Wonders as plot devices or just how to elegantly introduce it into play? I run into a lot of cases where players are like, oh, I have access to uh, Forces 3 or Matter 3, and I would like to make a 
permanent enlightened jacket that will always deflect bullets and I have to explain to my player well if that's going to be perpetual you either need to have a quintessence feed to it or you need to go through this process of creating a a wonder and they throw their hands up in the air do you have any advice for a storyteller that wants to introduce items of uh, magic in for the first time so for that particular one actually there's a thing called a trinket which don't really get much space in Mystic Armory because they're they're very rarely actually published in the books, but they are mundane devices or mundane objects that have been improved in some way with the spheres. So the specific example you had would be you take a jacket and instead of using forces, you use matter and you can make armor that has no penalty. To your original question, though, the way that I introduce wonders to uh, to players usually starts with them finding a book. I'm a big fan of grimoire, of grimoires and you know enforcing the uh, st- enforcing study but also giving bonuses and XP breaks if there are mentors or grimoires involved because that gives them a very clear benefit. And those are going to be paradigm bound, no? Oh, absolutely. A member of Iteration X is not going to get any use out of the Greater Key of Solomon. Meanwhile, a Hermetic is going to have a hard time with an IDX programming manual. That makes sense. Although certain members of House Veridius might have some exceptions there. Yeah, I can get behind that. So you really have to handle it case by case, but it is paradigm bound. You're, you're trying to learn something, and if you're trying to learn English and your teacher starts talking about algebra, you're not going to follow. Yeah. So usually I have the players find some kind of grimoire, usually not a primer, because those are a lot less useful to characters who are already out there. Okay. A primer being something that helps the initial awakening, of which yeah. the best is probably the, what, the Kitab al-Asir? So Kitab al-Asir is definitely the most famous, but I, I've got to say, uh, Oracle the Essence has, grew on me very quickly. <laughs> Noted. Uh, for those in the audience, the Kitab is the one of the foundational texts for the Society of Ether. It, it is kind of a, I guess, a throwback when the tradition was originally going to be the Parmenideans before the writers realized that the philosophy of Parmenides didn't actually fit with what the SOE were advocating for. Yeah, I love the history of the Kitab because it goes back to, oh, the Society of Ether was, was originally a hermetic house, a very small one that had like three people in it and then left and joined the Order of Reason. But, uh, but they were originally a hermetic house because it, that's how they made sense out of the Kitab al-Asir. And we, we've gotten bits and bobs of it over the various things where the SOE pops up. So you're, the first thing you like to introduce is is a book of some kind to help the characters along. Is there a, a next item you like to introduce in the hierarchy of magical things? So then it actually depends a lot on what game I'm running. So sometimes the next thing to do is just uh, is have the characters find some kind of weapon, especially if I'm running a high action game okay. or a super low action game. Either way, weapons are great. If it's high action, it's just a useful thing for them to have, and they can start seeing why wonders would be useful. If it's a very low action game, then it's a temptation. Because one of the things Mage is about, at least in my mind, is is whether you're going to do things the easy way and then have consequences later, or if you're going to do things the right way. I like the idea of, here's a hammer. Let's see what now looks like a nail to you. You hand a, a character a, a gun that always, kill, that always kills. Like, ignore the rules for a moment. Just say it's a magic gun that always kills its, its targets. No role needed, just automatically works. Does the character start seeing murder as a better, as a better solution to problems than they did beforehand? Interesting. Do we inadvertently start reenacting the comic book series Preacher? Got it. So in either very high violence or very low violence games, I find that weapons are often very useful wonders to hand out. In, me- in medium games where 
you know, a magic gun is useful and is likely to have a reasonable use in the next couple of sessions rather than being a temptation to solve problems quickly or an essential tool for survival. I tend to avoid them. Huh, noted. Does that apply the other way around? Do you wind up introducing uh, non-combat-centric magical items in combat-centric games, or is this kind of a one-way thing? Yes, I do. Or even objects that look like they should be one thing, but do something else. Like in uh, Euthanatos Revised, and the only reason I can cite a couple of these books specifically is that these are wonders that either that stuck out to me, or they are factions that I have played a lot of. In Euthanatos Revised, there's a wonder called Unbullets. Yes! The greatest charm of all time. Bullets that heal. So one thing I did once was I handed a bunch of characters who were very heavy combat characters a cache of unbullets. And the first thing they did was they determined that they were magical. And then they were trying to figure out what they would actually do. And in the end, they did the um, horrible thing of pulling some random homeless guy off the street and shooting him to find out what they did. Interesting. I feel like that tells you something about your players at that time. Yeah, um... No one's at their best freshman year of college. Oh, understood. <laughs> Just assume everyone has one dot of jaw. Understood. How did the experiment with unbullets that deal, what, six that, pardon me, that can heal up to six points of uh, lethal damage at a go? How did that go? So I ended up ruling that the homeless guy, though he did not have any health levels of damage, had various infirmities from life on the street that got healed. And they ended up completely playing it off like they meant to do that and got themselves a consort. Well, how about that? Jim, the now non-syphilitic hobo, is their uh, their bestie going into the future. That's when you've got one character who actually did pay attention and put a bunch of points into charisma. Yeah, it's certainly not a dump stat. You don't have to be talking after you shoot someone if they don't die. Okay, <laughs> well, that's good to know. Do you have any other recommendations for for introducing these items, or maybe for for higher level of play? Another set of items that are actually a lot lower use than I than I had remembered them being, but that I really love them thematically are the tradition blades from Guide to the Traditions. So the idea is that each of the traditions made a knife or a sword that somehow embodies that tradition, and it is a huge deal if you are holding one of them. If you show up to a Hermetic, co a hermetic Covenant and you're holding the sword of the Order of Hermes, at the very least, they're going to let you in and ask you how the hell you got that. Yeah. Now, are those paradigm-bound? Like, if I'm a Euthanatos, can I, like, can I heft this thing and be like... Bet you want to know how I got this one, guys. Not particularly. Mostly they ha have powers that relate to how you use them to cut things. But some of them are really just fascinating objects, like the virtual adept one doesn't exist in the physical world. So I pop into the digital web, the sword manifests, and I assume I can use it to like cut through code walls and stuff, because that's how the digital web works. Yeah, you can use it to get through security. Um, the Etherite one is actually just a really ridiculously nicely made sword. That's kind of what you expect out of a, a tradition of matter mages. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And the others are similar in some, in one, in some way, shape, or form. They have a fairly minor power overall, but the, the real power that these things have is social. So it represents prestige or appreciation within a tradition. Yeah, and, and the way I've played it, is that they were all lost when Horizon went down in 99. So if a player shows up with one, the entire tradition notices. Oh, interesting. Okay. So we, we've done a talk through of your text. For those curious, this thing clocks in at 181 pages and every page, except for like two introductory ones, is either 
a list of wonders or some wonderful art that Charles was able to find. What else do you have on your scheduling queue? I, I seem to be inferring a, a pattern avatar based on your released public schedule. So what are you working on? I am not nearly focused enough to actually have a release schedule. I have the projects I am currently working on and that changes regularly. Okay. What would you like to, what are future projects that you hope to be able to get around to? The, the number one biggest project I am working on right now is a guide to playing uh, Jewish characters and to Jewish magic in the world of darkness. So are we finally going to get a, uh, a Lions of Zion disparate book from you? or No, because I really dislike the name Lions of Zion. Noted. I mean, particularly because a group of Jewish wizards from the second century AD would not name themselves in a way that kind of rhymes in English. The Lions of Zion were a craft that focused on Kabbalah. And um, did they include Maimonides as their member, or was that a different craft? So Maimonides never shared a book with the Lions of Zion. He was only in, if I recall correctly, the second edition of A World of Darkness. For the book I'm writing, there will be crafts that correspond to bits and pieces of the Lions of Zion. Okay. But just not the Lions of Zion themselves. Themselves, And most of them will have names that are more rooted in specifics of Jewish history. That, now that one, that one is 2020 or later. It's no, there's no chance that's going to be done this year. More likely to happen sometime this year is a book that I just actually picked up, picked the title for, uh, The Celestial Spheres, which is going to be about the shard realms, the shade realms, and magic relating to the planets and stars. Do you plan on then giving us an update to uh, what was the phenomenon that was outlined in the revised version of Void Engineers that explains why sleepers can't see slumbering space gods when they look through a telescope? Void Engineers revised is on my I need to reread this carefully list for this. Um, one of the things I am focusing on is what it is like to actually go to the shard and shade realms and what might the characters find there and why might they want to go. Okay. So this is very much a 20th anniversary or pre-revised book. If the Avatar Storm is going hard, this book is not going to be of much use. Are there any other ongoing projects you'd like to direct our audience towards? The, I, the only other thing that I'm actively working on right now, I've got a few other things that are on back burners, is I am developing Dark Ages Wraith. Oh, interesting. So that would be Fourth Maelstrom then or something like that? First. The second one hasn't even hit for the Dark Ages period. I must be confusing them. So what we're talking about is whenever a whole bunch of people die at once, uh, we get these biggin storms that occur through the through the underworld. What was the the first one was the fall of Rome. The second one was the Black Plague. Oh, okay. It's um, coming. Got it. In my head, the fall of Rome was like the third. Not thinking of anything that would have wiped out a bunch of people before that. Uh, World War Two is the fifth. What the fourth is World War One? I. I think so. Yeah, and the third is the uh, the Columbian Exchange when a whole bunch of indigenous people suddenly go poof. We get to look forward to a, a Storyteller's Vault supplement on Wraith. Is that just you or are you working with a team? I'm working with a bunch of people. I don't want to start naming names because if I leave someone out, I'll feel bad. There's a thread in the Storyteller's Vault for a group on Facebook that had everyone, has most of the names of people who are interested uh, in it. And I'm proud to say that, amo that among the people are a couple of people who have freelanced for White Wolf and Onyx Path in the past. 
Oh, awesome. Maybe when that one comes out, we can have you back on and we can talk more in general about your experience with the Storyteller Vault, as at that point you will be a multiply published author and share some of the lessons you've picked up after publishing what I imagine are three non-trivially sized books. I will be happy to come back. As a note to our audience, we had made mention before of Mage the Podcast tutorial mode, where we are going to discuss some basic elements of the Mage system that tend to get give people a fair amount of confusion, and do live playthroughs of those systems. Charles has graciously volunteered to be one of the participants in that, so you may hear him again at some point down the line as storyteller or player, and I, I very much look forward to that. Charles, thank you so much for your time and for uh, joining us on Mage the Podcast. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening to Mage the Podcast, the number one Mage the Ascension podcast at magethepodcast.com. To clarify, we're not saying we're the number one Mage the Ascension podcast, merely the number one Mage the Ascension podcast that comes out of magethepodcast.com. Email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at magethepodcast. You can also listen to us on Spotify or anchor.fm. Either way, drop us a line, tell us what you think. Mage strong.